welcome to the Hindu's Parley podcast. This is K Bharat Kumar. India's inflation, which is measured by the Consumer Price Index, has stayed above the Reserve Bank of India's upper tolerance limit of 6% for 3 months running. The Central Bank's Monetary Policy Committee decided to hold benchmark interest rates earlier this month. Meanwhile, driven by their own inflation compulsions, western economies such as the US have begun raising benchmark interest rates. The question we have before us is is the RBI doing enough to arrest inflation? To discuss this today, we have with us Anant Narayan, who's associate professor and head of public policy at SPJ IMR, and Lekha S Chakraborty, professor at the National Institute of Public Finance and Policy. She is also a member of the governing board of management, the International Institute of Public Finance, Munich. Thank you, Lekha and Anand, for joining us. And we just wanted to, uh, you know, pick your brains following the RBI's decision last week to hold rates and their comments on the uh, accommodative stance and so on and so forth. You know, I did share some of the thoughts that would anchor this decision uh, discussion with both of you. Um, if I could uh, let Lekha go first uh, on on the first issue. what do you think uh, leka about rbi's decision last week how does that come out to you and you know we've had inflation running just beyond i know it's only you know a decimal point uh, change beyond uh, rbi's own comfort level of 6% and that's for two months running and likely i would expect the data to come out today to uh, continue on the same pattern uh, is the rbi too late on the curve your thoughts please Uh, yeah you said it uh, you know if we are going to miss the third time then you know there's going to be a fundamental rethinking in the efficacy of inflation targeting framework itself you know are we able to anchor the inflationary expectations properly that question itself is going to be very crucial and uh, through an institutional uh, you know a framework or mechanism through that new monetary a uh, policy framework you know the sole mandate of rbi is to look into the price stability uh, but of course after the pandemic uh, if they are going to miss that the third time uh, you know the question is about the that efficacy of inflation targeting framework itself so what exactly we have to do then uh, do we revise the nominal anchor from 4% or do we play around with that band plus and minus two to something else or we are going to you know fundamentally throw away the inflation targeting and go to a prior inflation targeting framework these are the fundamental questions but having said that uh, you know the context here is important uh, you know inflation is mounting and there is geopolitical uncertainty the war in ukraine the supply chain disruptions consignments getting delayed so it's basically a supply side exogenous supply side shock there you know maneuvering with that repo rate adjustments you know uh, increasing or decreasing repo rate uh, to contain the inflation may not work so if you are thinking from that perspective it's quite a smart move from rbi uh, to go ahead uh, with that hawkishness uh in the trend by tightening the liquidity in the indian economy but not by raising the interest rate of course uh you know the policy rates are left untouched as you mentioned the repo rate is kept status quo at 4% the reverse repo is maintained at 3.35 but 
Now the repo rate itself is going to get redundant uh, because they have introduced simultaneously, uh, kept the policy rates unchanged and introduced a new tool that is standing deposit rate at 3.75 to absorb the excess liquidity. I do believe that that's a very smart move to, you know, to work with the monetary policy corridor, but the rates are kept untouched. But we have to wait and see whether, you know, inflation uh, will be within the comfort zone or it's going to be the third time above the comfort zone. That we have to wait and see. But this SDF is not a post-pandemic innovation in the monetary policy stance. In the Orjit Patel, committee recommendations, you know, this SDF was suggested to absorb that excess liquidity to curb that tendency of the banks to invest above the statutory liquidity ratio in the government guilted security. So in that way, it's not a new toolkit at all, but they introduced at the right time, that timing. So it was a smart move, but we have to wait and see about whether, you know, at the third time we are going to miss it. Then, you know, the question is about the efficacy of inflation targeting framework itself. Yeah, over to Anand. Thank you. Thank you, Lekar. Anand, it's interesting, uh, you know, from your blog, um, I'd like to take off, you know, looking at a heretics view, and it's a nice way to put it for yourself. Uh, you, 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 you would like to take a more nuanced approach is what uh, I gather from your blog, but please do elaborate. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Bharat. Uh, lovely to be here and uh, lovely to be with you, Dr. Chakravarti. I'm going to pick up a point that uh, Dr. Chakravarti made just now, um, you know, about the situation being such that the efficacy of repo rate for to control inflation um, might not really be very strong. I would actually extend that a little more and say that I have a fundamental problem with the monetary policy framework in the country today. Now, I know it's a given fact and I can't change that. And it's, it's only one armchair professor's view, which is not going to change anything. But, um, and I also understand the reason why we got this monetary policy framework. But the reality as I see it, Bharat, is that, um, look, monetary policy is extremely complex. And the last two decades have underlined that several times over. The fact is all the macro variables that we care about, inflation, growth, jobs, fiscal and external balance, financial stability, these are interrelated. You cannot you know, target one without you know, moving in some form the other. And each of these are impacted by multiple tools that are there in the toolkit of the policymakers, whether it is interest rates. And by the way, interest rate is not just one rate. It's the short-term rate, it's the long-term rate and everything in between. Then you have banking liquidity, you have fiscal choices, you have exchange rates, you have macro prudential regulations, you have RBI interventions. And of course, you have that lovely thing called sentiments. All of these impact each of the other above, you know, macro, macro um, variables that we have worried about in different ways. Now, because there is so much of complexity in the past, we've had the government having its way and doing fiscal dominance, pushing the RBI to do whatever it wants. Uh, and we've had lots of books written on the subject. And, uh, you know, the po point is, if you accept this complexity, the government of the day can always pressurize the RBI to do whatever it wants, which is typically to lower interest rates and have it justified under the guise of complexity. So to avoid that, you brought in a simplistic framework, and it is a simplistic framework, where you pretend that inflation can be controlled by repo rate almost linearly, that, you know, you can change repo rate and keep inflation between 2% and 6% in the current context. I think that is utter rubbish. 
I mean, it just doesn't work that way. Now, let's keep that aside. This is a theoretical construct. It doesn't make a difference to today's life. To the broader question you're asking, is RBI behind the curve and they, could they have done more? I think there is a nuance to that question as well, Bharat. In the first place, there are cases or there are things that RBI has done which clearly feel like they're behind the curve. I'll give you two instances. One, in the February policy last uh, you know, two months ago, they said that they expected inflation to be 4.5% over FY23. That was not credible. And no analyst had such a low number. It didn't make sense that time. Now, with the advantage of hindsight, it makes even less sense. So that it seemed to sap at the credibility of the RBI. Second thing, which frankly I did not like, was you know RBI insisting that this 10-year bond yield was in some way a public good and therefore had to be repressed. You know, in FY21, the government had a record borrowing program, both the state and the central government. And the average weighted average borrowing rate was just 5.8% because the RBI effectively sat down on the curve. So your, your returns or your, or your returns for savers was brought down dramatically despite record borrowing programs of the government. Now, what happened because of that? Look, your inflation expectations are currently at 11%. Average deposit rates across all banks are at 5%. With such hugely negative real rates, you're pushing savers into the brink, you're pushing them into equity markets, you're pushing them into Bitcoin, you're pushing them into gold. And because you also have a very uneven recovery where the top 15% of the economy is doing extremely well, and that's where all the savings are lying, you're also seeing luxury goods demand going up with all these negative real rates. So there is an element where RBI has stoked in a form inflation by being slightly less credible and by suppressing savings rate, especially in the longer end, to a great extent. But to be fair to RBI, as Lekha rightly mentioned, you know, it's not been an easy time. And also to give credit, the, 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 the devil his credit, you know, RBI stopped government bond purchases in October last year, so that the GSAP and the OMO, open market operation purchases of bonds stopped in October. It's only now that the Federal Reserve has stopped buying bonds in the US, right? Likewise, money market rates have already gone up quite a bit. You know, one year ago, your one-year table rate was at 3.7%. Today, it's at 4.8%. And so they have allowed rates to come up. It's not that they've not, they've been silent and sleeping all this while, except they've done it very, very quietly. So look, it's been a tough context. There are elements where the RBI, I think, has slipped up in terms of credibility and suppressing savings rates too much. I don't think repo rate could have helped in the current context. But to be fair to the RBI, they've also stopped buying bonds, etc., and to that extent, they've allowed rates to move up in the, in the last one year. So very quick question um, on the point that you mentioned, you talked about repo rate not necessarily being the only pointer to or you know, controlling factor of inflation. Is it because, I'm, and I'm a newbie to economics, um, Anant, uh, if it wasn't already evident, I was just telling Leka before the interview started. So uh, is it because, you know, I understand banks part funds with the RBA and the repo rate uh, decides, you know, what interest they command, interest rates. But... Is it also because they're not dependent on RBA for funds? It's on the deposit rates. And that's why transmission has been historically a problem. Is that why you say that repo rate cannot be the you know, single factor um, that's, that's deciding uh, inflation? So the first caveat, uh, Bharat, I'm not a trained economist either. So I, I'd, I'd love to learn from Dr. Chakravarti sometime. Uh, but I'll give you my two-bit practitioner perspective. Look, um, there, are, there are circumstances where repo rates can indeed control inflation. Okay, so the way it works is the following: the repo rate and the presence of banking liquidity, presence or absence of banking liquidity, uh, impacts the short-term money market curve in a big way, right? 
likewise, your repo rate being low can mean that the cost of funds is low for the banks, and therefore the, the marginal cost is also is also low, and therefore they can lend to the to the uh, you know to the borrowers uh, a little more. So what can happen is if your lending rates are too low, borrowings can go up, credit growth can take take off. And that has two impacts. Credit growth by itself creates money. So every time you the banking system gives out a loan, it creates money. Second is, if somebody is taking a loan, they're obviously going to use that money to, to, to purchase or buy something, right? So that means there is more economic activity happening in the background. So under a circumstance where there is immense credit growth happening, which by the way was the case in the mid 2000s, et cetera, right? When you have strong credit growth happening, then increasing your policy rates, repo rates, or your short-term money market rates, et cetera, can impact the borrowing cost, bring down the demand for funds, bring down growth, and therefore reduce creation of money and reduce aggregate demand. Under those circumstances, it can work like a charm. In the current context, however, Bharat, while credit growth has picked up right now, it's about 9.5% the last weekly data which came out from the RBI. However, if I look at a two-year time frame, you know, before the pandemic to now, credit growth is barely 7.5% per annum which is lower than the nominal rate of growth. At the moment, your credit growth is actually very, very low. And that is not create, you know, creating money. In fact, what is creating money is government spending financed by banks and FX inflows over the last two years. That has created more money, which has nothing to do with the repo rate. So the point is, in the current context where it's not credit growth, which is demand, and it's already in the efficacy of the short-term rates to to impact the cost of funds and impact the, the cost or the, the, the creation of money and that creation of aggregate demand at this point in time. There are other things the RBI could do. I'm, I'm not for a minute suggesting it's only the repo rate. That brings us to my next question. And, you know, depending on what your stance you've taken on, you know, your view on what the RBI has done. Uh, so, Lekha, do you think that, you know, the RBI having taken this decision to stay with its uh, course, are you worried about how it impacts uh, growth? Uh, because obviously the other part of its mandate, if it's not as much as inflation to to, to uh, keep inflation tightly in rain, it's also to keep growth in mind. And that's probably what it has done so far. And, you know, uh, for, for some time now, even our own editorials have uh, dwelt on the possibility of stagflation, where if beyond a point, it's very difficult to rein in inflation, but you also lose out on the growth that you would have liked to have seen as a country. So do you have a view on this? Absolutely. You know, uh, it's like a policy dilemma over here. Like, uh, of course, if RBA bites the bullet and increase the interest rate, then the growth recovery process will slow down. As, uh, you know, Anand rightly mentioned, uh, you know, you need to keep the repo rate lower for the transmission mechanisms and all. That's a different story. But, you know, then the cost of funds or the cost of borrowings will be lower. That public debt management will be fantastic. But at the same time, here, the pressure on RBI is because of the global uncertainties. As Anand mentioned, you know, global uncertainty is not due to the war in Ukraine alone. We have uncertainties that global financial market uncertainties due to the decisions taken by US Federal Reserve in rising the series 
of their interest rate. So when there is interest rate differentials, the hot money component of our foreign capital, you know, that will definitely respond to the country where the interest rate is higher. So their hot money, that capital flight can happen. Then Anand rightly mentioned about financialization of savings. And if you're keeping the late rate lower, of course, that, 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 that's, that's, that's going to be very cruel uh, because the people, they deposit and they're not even getting the money what they deposited because the real interest rate is negative. So uh, RBA governor in the press meeting has rightly mentioned that he will look into the zero bound interest rate and he will work out his negative real rate, rates, rates of interest uh, immediately. But that's very crucial because otherwise, financialization of savings, that, that's, that's going to be a challenge. And of course, other than the capital flight, the financialization of savings, now with this mounting inflation, if you don't increase the interest rate, then you know you, you are going to fall behind the curve. But RBA has not taken the step towards raising a repo rate rather than do, doing that. Uh, you know, what they have done is they try to absorb the excess liquidity into the system by introducing a new new tool. You know, this also, you know, basically questions the efficacy of in inflation targeting framework because you're basically pegging your policy rates based on an inflation anchor which you assume which is 4% plus or minus 2% band and based on inflationary expectations and the output gap. And of course, the inflationary expectations and output gap are unobserved variables. And how you deal with this unobserved variables in the rules-based monetary macro framework. Of course, expectation survey we put forward and for capturing the output gap, the difference between the potential and actual, of course, actual GDP numbers we take, but the potential, again, it's very controversial the way we do through, you know, econometric methodology, which I don't want to get into detail, but that output gap, that variable itself is very controversial because the basic assumption here is, uh, you know, you are experiencing cyclicality, just cyclicality, and you know, once you correct the cyclicality through the monetary policy, through the rate revisions, you know, then you're going to get a growth back to the prior pandemic position. That's the assumption. And this assumption is very dangerous because if that drop in the GDP or drop in the growth process is not cyclical, if that is, you know, it's, it's a permanent scar, then monetary policy acting as a counter cyclical policy tool will not work very well. So this we have to look into and understand the efficacy of the new monetary policy framework and its limitations to trigger the growth. So just declining or reducing the repo rate leading to one-to-one -one growth rate process, that assumption has got its own limitations. That's why, you know, as Anand mentioned, and you also rightly pointed out that fiscal dominance is very crucial over here. And fiscal policy, of course, was very accommodative. We have very high fiscal deficit and high debt numbers, but of course, from a position of strength, finance minister articulated that her high fiscal deficit numbers are for, you know, uh, uh, crowding in private corporate investment. So fiscal policy has been very accommodative because we have understood the limitations of the monetary macro in triggering the growth process. Anant, would you like to go? Um, on where you see whether there are any concerns at all. I know you welcomed it, uh, the, the RBA's re uh, decision last week, 
but uh, where does this lead uh, us to in terms of fallout in terms of growth look i'll i'll try to add to what uh, lekha just mentioned as she rightly mentioned the context is extremely tough and for a minute let's assume that rbi's basic mandate is inflation targeting so while i disagree that repo rate can manage inflation in this country at all times let's keep the mandate as inflation and let's go with that but let's look at the overall context you can't look at inflation in isolation now inflation itself is a problem uh, chances are by the way even for the next fiscal year fy23 inflation could cross 6% right if the current oil prices remain where they are it could cross 6% it's not just oil prices it's also agricultural prices it's fertilizers it's it's feed as the rbi governor mentioned lot of commodity prices have gone up etc etc right so 6% looks like a, a under threat now let's look at growth uh, unfortunately you know while there has been a bit of an economic recovery the fact is the gdp for this year the real gdp for fy22 which has just gone by is pretty much the same as it was 2 years ago pre pandemic so effectively 2 years have gone by with zero growth real growth right um at you know com- combine high inflation by the way the last 2 year inflation has been 6% per annum compounded annual high inflation and zero growth is a is a disaster right and going forward why we we should see recovery you know rbi expects 7.2% for the next fiscal year the fact is even that is under risk you know because you don't know what the global context is looking like high commodity prices tend to impact our growth including oil prices uh, exports might be impacted because of global slowdown so we don't know we don't have it's, there are a lot of imponderables here so that's the context as far as your um, uh, growth and inflation are concerned uh look at jobs you know jobs you know is it it a terrible terrible situation uh, cmi data suggests that over the last 5 years we've lost 2 crore jobs in ex of agriculture right so in services and industry put together we've lost 2 crore of jobs and it's not just pandemic even before the pandemic we were actually losing jobs so it's again a terrible terrible situation and as they have mentioned our fiscal situation is already stretched our external situation is going to get tricky going forward we are looking at a current account deficit possibly of 100 billion dollars it will be a record the next fiscal year because of elevated oil prices um fii flows look very very iffy given the global context even if fdi flows come in we are still going to see a very large outflow from the rbi which has to be made up so you know th- there is a tricky situation on the external front as well it's a complex and almost a nightmarish situation for the policy maker under such circumstances what can you do to control inflation that's the bottom line question to ask right um the reality is in my humble view at least at the moment pushing up repo rate might not be very efficacious when it comes to controlling inflation and this goes back to the point i was making earlier normally pushing up repo rate tightening liquidity makes sense when there's a lot of credit growth happening if you're growing at 25 30% credit growth which is obviously creating aggregate demand and money of its own you have to arrest that by trying to hike interest rates right now we are looking at for the last 2 years 7.5% compounded annual growth rate which is lower than the you know the nominal growth rate so repo rate is not the point it's not really the the issue right however there are two things which cannot be ignored one is the point about negative real interest rates that stoking its own inflation and more importantly creating inequality you know i mentioned that 15% of the economy is doing extremely well even though the overall gdp is flat bottom 40% of the economy is probably in very very deep trouble so you have a very high inequality right now now if you keep negative interest rates which is low rates for savers and under such circumstances 
the top 15% will benefit even more because they will put money into risky assets and they'll you've seen how equity markets have been performing despite the economy and it is it just increases the inequality in many ways and it also pushes up in fact last year gold uh, consumption was at all time highs 50 billion dollars we imported as a country in 2021 likewise you know the lamborghini demands and all of that went up in demand so i think real interest rates have to be brought uh, uh, have to be improved to that extent longer end yield curve going up so your 10 year bond yield going currently to 7.18% or so i think that's fine no problem if savers can get 6 7% for that 5 year savings that pushes less money into equity markets that pushes less of discretionary high end demand and hopefully curbs that kind of inflation but besides this and sentiment the second part of sentiment reality is global markets with everybody tightening globally if we stand out and say we are not going to tighten uh it does attract negative sentiment so you've got to manage that sentiment you've got to give that credibility that you are focused on inflation which is why i said 4.5% february inflation estimate for fy23 was a mistake it shouldn't have been that low right now right now they have tried to bring back credibility which is great i think it's good combination of bringing back inflation credibility by saying the right things and by improving the re- return for medium term savers um, including my mother by the way who's a pensioner Uh, i think will go a long way to to controlling inflation and managing financial stability the ultimate to control inflation in the current context bharat is for the government to create jobs and output you know that's the only way the real economy is the only way to actually improve or, or uh, improve all our macro variables that i talked about monetary policy cannot do uh, much for either growth or for inflation control eventually it's a real economy which is where the fisc and the government comes into the picture my next question was about the cpi uh, index itself do you think it's appropriately represented how relevant is it because uh, i saw a media report and I'll, i'll try and send you a link both uh, that talked about cassettes still being a part of the index uh, audio cassettes nobody really buys them or trades them on them anymore so you think it's time to look at uh, the index itself and see if it needs a refurbishing of sorts uh, leka would you like to go first yeah uh, you know uh, before getting into that integrity of course i can understand the components in the basket but you know the real issue is here uh, the divergence between the wp and cpi and of course the energy price volatility the food inflation so how rbi is able to anchor it in the context of india of course inflation is not strictly a monetary policy phenomenon it's not a monetary phenomenon there are many supply side shocks so how inflation targeting is able to control or maneuver those supply side shocks this is an important question and we we defend rbi is you know through that expectations channel rbi will be able to control the supply side shocks and all but i don't know whether beyond a point that works well or not because we need to see the empirical evidence that you know throughout uh, this pandemic period we were able to maneuver the inflationary expectations channel and controlled inflation or inflation was you know under control because of many other elements which you know which is not there right now right now there are global uncertainties energy price volatility and the inflation is going haywire so we need to look into the empirical evidence whether inflation targeting was a successful policy framework rules based policy framework to anchor the inflationary expectations then to attribute you know as uh, uh, anand rightly pointed out here the real question is about 
the real rate of interest being negative. So the mounting inflation, that's a matter of concern because it's getting into the turn structure of interest rates and the real interest rate is going negative. And the credit infusion, which was a predominant you know, narrative of the economic stimulus packages, that's not working very well because Anand rightly mentioned that you know, if there is no corresponding growth in the economy, then this credit can lead to the mounting NPAs. So these are cru crucial, crucial questions because you know i have read in the paper by stiglitz and rashid with stimulus package works of course it's not the credit uh, infusion but we have talked about normalization procedure which is informal from the side of rbi only in terms of absorbing the open market operations but not the operation twist that is you know simultaneously doing a selling and buying of securities selling short-term and buying long-term securities so that you know there should be an elongation of the maturity structure of the debt market so that we will get enough space or enough liquidity to you know work upon so i don't think that the normalization procedure is complete it, it's very impartial and it, impartial in the sense it is not uh, complete it is very informal that's what i meant it's very informal but you know on the fiscal policy side as anand mentioned you know how to control the inflation, you have to focus on government acting as an employer of last resort. That participation in coming to the hands of people by providing, you know, jobs, guaranteed jobs. So that ELR policies can be, you know, a very strong policies to tackle the inflation process rather than, you know, government providing cash transfers, a huge fiscal stimulus into the hands of people. But at the same time, where is the fiscal space? That's another question. Whether we can do a fiscal policy, monetary policy coordination uh, through the monetization of deficit once again, because that's exactly what Koshik Basu and, uh, you know, Nobel laureate uh, Abhijit Banerjee, they're all arguing for a re-emergence of monetization of deficit through better coordination of fiscal and monetary policy. So we need to wait and see, because that is again inflationary in nature, but, uh, you know, heterodox economists always tell that you are below the full employment equilibrium, so it will not lead to mounting inflation, but it will lead to growth. So we have to wait and see. So my, uh, you know, that hunch is it's not the CPI or, you know, the core inflation or the, you know, head, uh, headline inflation that we focus uh, from the RBI side, the question is a little bigger than that, you know, but of course, uh, you know, we need to look into the basket quite closely. Okay, so I didn't have a question on fiscal policy, but yeah, Anant, I'd like to hear your view on the CPI index itself, if you have another. Yeah, I, I'll just add to the uh, extensive answer that uh, Lekha has already provided. Uh, specifically, look, the way in which the CPI basket is constructed, as I understand it, as I said, I'm not a trained economist, is you look at the consumer expenditure survey, right? And you look at what people are consuming, and then you try and create a rural and an urban basket, which kind of approximates to the average consumer uh, what, what they actually consume, right? And you try and arrive at the median, et cetera. Now, the last consumer survey was done in 2011-12, right? Subsequently, there was one done in 2017-18, the results of which remain a mystery to us. We don't know what it contained, right? Um, now, therefore, there is... And we've seen a lot of reports which therefore indicate that, you know what, for instance, even the food weightage is now too high, it should be lower than what the old 2011-12 basket, etc. is. Um, there is one report that I saw in Ideas for India, which I kind of liked, which actually tried to mimic uh, the, given that there's an absence of the consumer expenditure survey, they looked at the consumer pyramid housing survey of the, of the CMIE. 
and they saw the consumption pattern indicated by that. Uh, their conclusion was based on the 2019 pre-pandemic consumer uh, CPHS uh, data. Um, the basket wasn't too off. It was off by a couple of percentage points here and there, uh, but by and large, it wasn't off. Of course, you know individual items like typewriters and whatever nonsense is there, which which needs to be corrected as you will in the next consumer expenditure survey, which hopefully will happen in 2023. But by and large, I think uh, uh, at least that that study seems to indicate that the CPI number isn't too off. But the reality also, Bharat, is that um, people's perception of inflation is far higher than what the CPI number indicates. A, it reflects in the housing uh, household, uh, ex- you know, expectations uh, which RBI itself con- conducts. Of course, that's not a very you won't say that's a robust survey, so it has its own limitations. But even otherwise, when I speak to and I, again, this is anecdotal, which is not don't take my word for it. But when I speak to folks in the industry, when I sp- speak to even MSMEs, uh, their perception of inflation is seems far far higher than six percent. So unfortunately, and I, I think the recent hikes in petrol prices and diesel prices will also add to that uh, to that expectation. So reality is perception of inflation is higher than what you see, but by itself the basket not, might not be too off. But that that too is a problem. The perception is a problem because it ties into how much I will hold or you know you know save. Oh, absolutely, and I, I think Lekha mentioned it very correctly that how you know inflation expectations is as important as the actual inflation print itself. In fact, you would argue even more important. So, absolutely, and some of these things are 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 difficult to gauge. But yeah, we do have good indices which try and capture household expectations. So, uh, you know, I had a question on uh, fiscal policy, and Lekha touched upon it. So, you know, there are different, you, you said, uh, Leka, that your government has been very accommodative on the fiscal front. Um, but we also noticed that as, uh, you know, collections in different forms, uh, taxes have been robust, but divestment proceeds have not come in as expected for various reasons. And then we noticed, uh, I just did uh, uh, some you know, back of the envelope calculation, and I saw that CapEx spending, though year on year has been healthy, but month on month has been slowing down. And I would gauge, I don't know. But I would guesstimate that it's because it's not seen the kind of investment receipts that it would like would have liked to. So, what options does the government have in order to be able to support the RBI in both reining in inflation, if at all that's possible now, uh, versus uh, ensuring growth going forward? Uh, you want me to go, Bharat, or is it for Lekha? Either Anand, feel free to go, please. Okay. Now I'll just add to what Lekha rightly mentioned. Look, um, I kind of like the government's approach at one level. Um, for on what they're doing on the fisc, right? Now, at least headline, and we can argue about the actual numbers a little later. See, till the for till the, the average till between FY11 and FY20, um, the amount of capex capital expenditure uh, in the government central government uh, budget was about 12% of overall expenditure. For FY22, that was increased to 16%. For FY23, the budget is 19%. They've tried to shift money from revenue expenditure to capital expenditure. Now, don't take the headline for it because there's a bit of fudge involved. You know, for instance, Air India making good was considered as a capital expenditure last year. It is not. Likewise, this year also has some numbers around NHA, etc. But ignoring those corrections, by and large, they've tried to push more money into uh, capital expenditure. I like that, to be honest. Um, I'm not a great fan of uh, of doles, like Lekha mentioned. I don't think um, just giving doles makes sense. The reason for that is not because I'm a heartless, but because in our country, we don't manufacture enough. So every time we put money in the hands of people, 
And if we don't create adequate supply to back that demand, all you do is stoke inflation or stoke imports. Last year, Bharat, our trade deficit in 2021 with China was $64.5 billion. It's an all-time high record. And this is all manufactured products. And by the way, our import bill is not just oil. It's also gold. It's also electronics. It's also chemicals. It's also plastics. It's also all kinds of raw materials. I have an AC running up, which is you know 60%, I'm guessing, of that of that AC com- components are actually imported, right? Your telephone is entirely, almost entirely imported, except it's probably assembled in India right now. So the reality is uh, we don't manufacture enough. We miss the manufacturing bus. Now, I know a lot of people... And a lot of people whom I respect believe that it's too late to catch up on the manufacturing bus. I, but I think we should try. We need everything. We need services. We need um, uh, industry, everything to try and create jobs and output, right? So to that extent, I'm hoping that the multiple things that the government is doing, which is starting with pushing money into infrastructure, particularly roads and railways. Second, trying to make sure that things like PLI are there to give incentives to people to start manufacturing in those 15 sectors, etc. Third is trying to improve ease of doing business. And it's a controversial topic, but you know things like labor law reforms, which by the way have not been notified as yet, uh, tax cut that happened two years, three years ago now. Uh, I think these are all good things. Hopefully, they resolve things like land reforms, which by the way is a complete headache. Uh, policy certainty again a big problem. Contract enforcement big problem. Judicial process is big problem. But hopefully, they improve all of this. And along with another controversial topic of privatization, I'm hoping that a combination of all of this starts to create meaningful jobs in the country meaningful output as well, not just jobs, but also output. So to that extent, I like the push on infrastructure. I like the push on disinvestment, even though these are controversial topics. Okay, And, and um, one area where I don't like what the government is doing, and this is not just the central government, also the state governments, I think the amount of money we put into education, healthcare, nutrition, public services, urban infrastructure is terribly low. Okay. Uh, education is a shame. The fa- and, and the fact that in healthcare, okay, so for instance, stunting rates, of 35%, wasting rates of 18%, whatever it's, it is at the National Family Health Survey shows. Uh, these are terrible statistics. You know, uh, I, I look, um, when we talk about needing jobs and output, um, by the way, it's, it's a complicated world because at one end, the organized sector is complaining about too high wages and not enough skilled labor. At the other end, you have a lot of unskilled people who are struggling, as, as Rekha rightly mentioned, there's a huge amount of underemployment and you know there's a lot of disguised unemployment sitting in agriculture, et cetera. So you have a problem. Now, you, you need education, healthcare, nutrition, sanitation to actually address this particular issue, create a pool of talented young people and Indians are, are bright, You know, give them the right nutrition and nourishment and education and, and they will take care of the future for us, right? Uh, I wish governments would get that religion, right? Uh, unfortunately, it's not part of a you know political discourse at all, or not adequately enough. Uh, so I'm I, I do find that problem. Uh, I'm not a fan of uh, Kisan, whatever doles, and 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 even, I'm not even a fan of Narega to be honest. Uh, and I I know it's a controversial topic, but I like this push into infrastructure and jobs. Um, I know it's execution wise, it's going to be extremely difficult. It's all nice to say that I have a grand plan and we see what happened with Make in India. Executing it is going to be very, very tough. And I sincerely wish we would do a lot more for education, healthcare, sanitation. I don't mind if we blow the fiscal deficit as long as we're putting money into education, healthcare, sanitation and, and public services. Actually, that was, uh, I had a colonial request because governments typically, especially governments like uh, the Indian governments over time, 
uh, stifled by the fact that you know three components take away anything that they can spend uh, subsidies defense and uh, interest rates that they have to pay on their debt so they actually left with little but you're saying it's all right if we let the fiscal deficit uh, you know path okay i'm 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 being i'm being facetious when i say blow the fiscal deficit and that's not what, what i really mean but but here is a heartening thing uh, uh, bharat uh, if you look at the state spending on education over the years the numbers are going up but it's inching up very very slowly so it's uh, if i remember from from what i've seen last it's gone from 2% of gdp to about 3% of gdp okay over the last 15 years or so it's not been a it's not been a dramatic rise it is going up okay um, but i think we we need to do a lot lot more uh, as i said 35% stunting and 18% uh, wasting statistics is shameful uh, in a country of our size and our aspirations we are wasting the human resource that we have i think that needs to be addressed i'm hoping that becomes a part of our political discourse soon um, and absolutely if if we can get that right um, that is to me the long term solution for everything whether it is sustainable growth whether it is inflation whether it is um, you know employment because reality is um, you know uh, we don't know what the future is going to look like with all this automation machine learning robotics etc who the hell knows what jobs are going to be look you know in 15 years time but if you give your kids the right kind of education and and nutrition etc they will take care of the future for us they will know they will they will adapt to whatever comes out in in, in the future you know we have to keep them prepared for that that's what it is okay you said you had a couple of points uh, on on this uh, issue please go ahead yeah anand preempted most of my points on the fiscal side but i would love to add two points and of course uh, you know investment in uh, social infrastructure education health and nutrition you know that development of the human capital formation is very crucial when we talk about the use of fiscal space because uh, there is high fiscal deficit and high debt but how we use that for intergenerational liquidity that is very crucial and for from that perspective you know investment in human capital formation that is very important but Uh, as Parag mentioned, uh, where is the fiscal space? That question, you know, we have to address. Now we tried disinvestment, privatization, but the numbers, you know, spoke that you know there's an issue over there regarding the fiscal marksmanship, regarding the aspirations and the reality. That gap is going to be huge, and we have. fiscal rules and how we are going to get back to the fiscal rules you know or can we say a goodbye to the fiscal rules these are questions now what finance minister has done is she has an excessive deficit procedure to be tackled in the medium term by 25 26 she has to bring back the fiscal deficit to 4.5 not 3% the original one but 4.5 that's welcome because otherwise this moment uh, you know if you go for expenditure compression just by focusing on the capex and if you go for an expenditure compression in the revenue budget in the revenue spending you know there will be repercussions as anand rightly mentioned it is going to affect the financing of human development aspects which is very crucial and we have seen in the last budget also you know there was a kind of reduction in the financing of human development and that's going to be detrimental so forget about debt and deficit right now and as you mentioned what is going to crowd out the fiscal space is a huge in- interest payments as a percentage of revenue receipts if that is crossing about 
40%, that's a matter of concern. But to contain inflation, as Anand pointed out, fiscal policy has got a major role now, given the inflation targeting fails to contain the inflation. And from that perspective, you know, employer of last resort is crucial. And of course, you know, we need to look about the fiscal space, you know, how we can enhance the fiscal space or what we thought is that privatization is the magic mantra, which didn't work. So whether we have to go for a finite money financing of fiscal programs, it's not a helicopter money to provide the cash transfers, but a finite money financing of fiscal programs tied to, you know, the employer of last resort, then it won't be inflationary. Rather, it will be a policy which addresses, uh, you know, which helps to contain the inflation because generally, you know, we have a taboo towards monetization, thinking that, you know, it, it creates inflation, but a finite uh, you know, financing of fiscal programs uh, through, uh, you know, synergy. It's technically the high-powered money, using the high-powered money uh, for creating the fiscal space. That is very crucial. And I hope that this fiscal and monetary policy coordination will be there to contain inflation. Because uh, prima facie, we think that it's going to be inflationary. But if it is going to be used uh, appropriate appropriately, then that's going to contain inflation rather than creating inflation. So that's a myth that, you know, synergy creates inflation. Thank you, Lekha. Uh, Anand, one point that you mentioned in one of your earlier uh, responses was, you know, we cannot be seen doing something in isolation when the rest of the world is going in a direction, right? So if, uh, even if repo rate does not directly and significantly enough influences uh, inflation, but if we go, if we do not go down the same route as, for example, the US is, then there is an issue of the impact of flight of capital. Again, it's perception based on our uh, currency and that gives rise to a whole host of uh, similar and newer problems. Uh, so what would your suggestion to the RBI be here then? As I mentioned earlier, Bharat, um, yes, credibility is important. Okay. And by the way, credibility does not mean hiking rates in the short term. Okay. That's not what constitutes credibility. Foreign investors are smart. They look at the totality of what you're doing. Right. Now, as I said, in the February monetary policy, when they came out with 4.5% as the FY23 inflation expectation, um, yes, 4.5% could have been achieved, to be fair to the RBI. At that point of time, the Ukraine war had not started. But it was still a stretch. It was not the base case for any analyst that I know. Right? Uh, almost every analyst I know that was surprised by that number. They said 5% maybe, 45 looks really on the... So when you come out with such an estimate and you indicate that you're going to stay you know, uh, loose until the COVID impact is over, uh, then you start you know, raising doubts, kindling doubts in the minds of investors. Right? This policy, on the other hand, even though they did not necessarily raise the repo rate, of course, they, they brought in the SDF, as Lekha rightly mentioned, um, even though they did not raise the rates or, or indicate that they're going to raise it the next, the, the next policy, the fact that they said, I'm putting inflation before growth, the fact that they said, you know, markets are now moving very dynamically and I'm going to respond to whatever happens, which means I'm not going to give you prior warning on what happens, right? I, I will just act as, as necessary. That kind of enforced the, the credibility along with the market movement thereafter. Today, when, when your 10-year bond yield is nearing 7.2%, uh, that makes foreign investors a lot more comfortable about, you know, the fact that, you know, the markets are fairly priced in. For, for than it was when it was 6.75%. Right? So there is, there's a dramatic movement which has happened in yields after the policy. Now, uh, one last bit on the overall picture, right? Um, had, you, know, you, you have to be also careful about the quality of the inflows that you bring in. 
it's not just that i have to bring in foreign inflows irrespective of what your basic flows are the last thing you want is to keep short term interest rates extremely high and therefore bring in reversible carry seeking inflows now these are short term traders who merely look at which country is offering better interest rates and they will scoot scoot and shoot the moment they find interest rates are they've achieved the target okay so you yeah arbitrage etc so you don't want those kind of flows coming in so just because you you're trying to get flows for the short term if you push up interest rates uh, you might actually be doing a bad thing right now which is where the buffer that rbi has of enormous amount of you know currency reserve 670 billion dollars including forwards uh, gives a lot of comfort to us right so we need not panic it's not a time that we have to panic just because outflows will probably happen as i mentioned yes rbi might have to sell 50 60 billion dollars the next fiscal year very very uncertain because things are changing as we speak but they might have to sell a lot of dollars but purely because of that should i be concerned about outflows no let's also remember uh, you know we we got about if i remember the numbers correctly we got about 2.8 trillion rupees worth of fx inflows about 38 billion dollars worth of of f foreign portfolio inflows in fy21 last year in fy22 we lost about uh, 1.4 trillion rupees worth of um, flows about 1.2 to 1.44 so it's only half of what came in in the previous year right so and of course some of the money has to go back i mean it can't be there forever so here, bottom line is this yes we do have a shortfall in fx uh, rbi might have to sell dollars next year it's not a problem for one year because rbi has enormous amount of reserves it becomes a problem only while prices are here for three years or more right only then we have a problem in terms of not adequate fx reserves so that's point number 1 no need to panic second at the same time you have to preserve credibility if if you lose credibility you might beget more outflows and you might start to then start to trigger financial stability issues of various kinds so do, they have done the right thing now of at least putting inflation before growth and telling people listen i'm i'm now concerned about inflation i'm not going to let this run away and you know uh, and, and be very loose for too long so that's good uh, third is eventually it belongs to the real economy as i keep underlining if we have the right kind of investments going through we will get good quality long term fdi coming into the country far more better than arbitrage carry seeking inflows coming in for the short term we don't want that we want fdi so it all depends again on on the fiscal side working out okay on point number 2 and uh, uh, you know just for the average citizen the onlooker isn't this what the rbi was supposed to have been doing anyway putting inflation before growth just keeping in mind growth but essentially the mandate was inflation or am i just being too harsh given the circumstances i i know that professor chakravarty and i will probably disagree on this uh, so i let me put it, put it this way um look um, inflation is important I, i don't think anybody will disagree on that uh, i i don't you know i'm a, i'm now a, a professor okay I, i don't own much of too much of money i live, i'm living off my savings i don't want inflation believe me okay so um uh, inflation is extremely important no questions asked i don't mind a mandate which says control inflation okay uh, my my only problem with the current framework is it it then goes on to say you can keep inflation between the currently 2 to 6% by changing repo rate that is utter rubbish that is you know you cannot legislate away macroeconomic complexity by 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 putting a law there you know you can't say the gravity is banned it's a complex situ- economic situation right so you it, you cannot just say so you say inflation mandate but then you give the appropriate tools and i have told you the tools it is entire yield curve it is currency markets it is liquidity it is macro prudential regulations fiscal stance a whole bunch of things go into inflation so that's my second problem now the third larger problem 
the us is not looking only at inflation it looks at inflation and employment i would argue in a country like india employment as at the moment i'm not saying forever but employment for now is an extremely important metric i'll give you an example bharat if i told you that you had to uh, will you accept 1% higher inflation if that creates 10 million more sustainable jobs in this country now currently we don't even have that debate now by the way i spoke to a fiscal hawk yesterday whom i respect tremendously i've learned a lot from that person i asked that person you know this question about can't we have also inflation uh, employment as the metric just as the us does his response was we don't have reliable indicators of employment which is a fair response we have cmi but who the hell knows you know there are lots of criticism of cmi as well plfs comes with a lot lot of lag so we really don't know but to me that's a that's not that's an unsatisfying answer just because you don't measure it currently doesn't mean that should not be a metric maybe that tells us that our statistics has to buckle up so that we start measuring in employment better as well so to me yes inflation is extremely important but i would i would push for inflation and employment to be considered together but in the current context you know whenever i raise my voice i'm i'm told that oh you're against inflation targeting i'm not i'm saying if in the current context i'm fine with inflation targeting except let's be realistic let's you know get rid of this rubbish that you can use repo rate to control inflation in the current context in india that is utter rubbish that doesn't make sense at all like a, uh, that was specifically to a point anant had raised but if you have a view please feel free to go ahead i have exhausted my list of questions and we can sum up thereafter yeah sure sure you know acknowledging that this uh, inflation is not a transient thing that itself is a big thing from the rbi in the recent mpc meetings you know that's welcome but as anand mentioned uh, you know uh, changing repo rates to control the inflation that's not going to happen the way we think maybe that's the reason why they have untouched the repo rate and they have got into the liquidity management to control inflation that's the way they have responded through the new toolkit sdf so that process is welcome but the question here is if the predominant you know way in which you are going to do the normalization procedures to the credit you know that itself is going to create lot of instabilities in the financial markets because if you look into the financial stability report published by rbi recently that macro stress test for the credit risk that indicates gross non performing asset ratio of you know this commercial banks that may increase to 6.9 and to 8.1 by september 2022 so that's quite uh, you know we need to take a clue from there if that is going to happen then this credit infusion unless supported by growth it's that that's going to put us in trouble so that that's what you know uh, my final point on this thank you um is there any other point that either of you would have liked to have dwelt on and we've not given the opportunity to touch on yeah i was thinking about uh, that fiscal rules you know a fiscal rule is quite uh, you know that that's a prelude for a monetary rule so we need to keep the deficits under control for the inflation containment so that's not the way i argued when i argued that you know fiscal policy needs to be accommodative to support monetary policy so i never meant that a fiscal rule is a prelude for a monetary rule monetary rule in the sense an inflation targeting so that clarification you know i thought that i never meant that 
but rather what I meant by an accommodative fiscal space is that communication, uh, you know, that's very important that despite having high fiscal deficit, we are using it to create, you know, capital infrastructure and also uh, to protect the human capital formation in the country. So that's the way I meant. I thought that I will give you that clarification. That's all. Great. Uh, really appreciate your uh, time, both of you. Thank you so much. It's been a very valuable learning experience for me. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bharat. And uh, lovely chatting. Uh, Professor Chakravarti learned a lot. So thank you. Thanks, Sanat. Thank you so much.